0: Welcome to the Gut Matters podcast with Casa DeSante, the virtual gut clinic. Today's
1: guest is Dr. Anne Marie Barter. Dr. Barter specializes in working with patients who have neurotransmitter disorders, such as anxiety and depression, as well as adrenal issues.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Gut Sense podcast. And today we're excited to welcome Dr. Anne Marie Barter to the podcast. And she's going to talk to us about gut health. Welcome and thanks for being here, Dr.
1: Bada. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And so it was super fun to have you on my podcast. So I'm just glad to be here and just, and we can do this again.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to talking about gut health. And um, so can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, what
1: you do? And um, yeah, so I, um, i yeah, so I've been in um, I've been in practice now for about fourteen years. Um, I practice primarily functional medicine um, out of Colorado. So anyway, I have two practices there, and so a lot of my practice is largely gut health. Um, you know, I work with a lot of neurotransmitter disorders. Um, so basically, a lot of anxiety and depression, and kind of memory issues and focus, um, just on. On kind of a minor scale, as well as adrenal issues. So, anyway, so that's been my practice largely for the past 14 years. And I I ended up getting into this. I I ended up getting into this kind of form of, and I do more natural medicine, um, getting into this because of my own health issues, right? So, I basically had all kinds of health issues. I I was having um, hives all over my body, I had severe IBS. I struggled with severe anxiety and um, and just having a little bit uh, harder time learning to read than some of my classmates. And so anyway, it sort of drove me onto this health uh, health brigade because traditional medicine, the way it was being practiced at the time, couldn't really do anything to help me. So I was kind of left to my own devices and natural medicine is what really helped me. So that's why I ended up here today.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So uh, for those of our viewers who are curious, can you, um, uh, what is in in your mind, what is the definition of functional medicine and what's your philosophy and how do you practice it?
1: Yeah. So I basically use lab testing um, to diagnose, not really even to diagnose because I'm not trying to put a name on disorders. I'm just trying to figure out what's going on, you know, for example, like do you have low serotonin levels? Do you have high cortisol levels? And so I'm, I'm working in this gray area that kind of, that generally gets missed by, by traditional medicine, the way that it's generally practiced in labs, right. Uh, or, you know, in practice. So I'm, I'm kind of looking at a gray area where people haven't been able to be helped and they're having these symptoms that are really irritating and really affecting their lives. And so My philosophy is that the body can really heal itself when given the right input. And so what I look at is, you know, sometimes it's dietary changes. Sometimes it's not most of the time by someone, by the time someone gets to me, which I think is all of our experiences is that they have been through the rigmarole by the time they, they come and see me. So I'll generally run uh, labs and figure out what's going on. And a lot of those are functional labs like stool testing um, and I get, I get the question a lot, like what would be different than this, the stool testing you're running versus my gastroenterologist, which is a really fair question, right? Right. Cause you've had a stool testing done. So how could they yeah. be that different? Yeah. You know, so, uh, so our testing is going to be more PCR and it's going to be a lot more, uh, you know, comprehensive and more of a functional way. So we can kind of see these minor issues where it's like bloating, et cetera, but, you know, in traditional medicine, it's really important for ruling out and diagnosing, but I'm practicing more in the gray area, and I just feel like the body can generally heal itself from giving the right inputs.
0: Awesome. So um, for your patients with IBS, what do you typically see as the um, how is the cause of their symptoms and how do you um, typically treat them? And how long does it take? You yeah. know, some of these people have um, had their issues for so long.
1: Totally. Well, great question. Um, and, and such an expansive answer, because everyone has IBS for, I think, different reasons. It's not always the same. So a couple of things that I see, you know, generally people come in, uh, primarily women. They tend to be more bloated, um, you know, from an IBS perspective. That tends to be one of the big things that it, they, they have had severe food restriction. Um, very, you know, dietary, severe dietary restriction for a long period of time uh, hasn't really helped. Um, and then sometimes constipation or diarrhea is what I will generally see. Um, and so at that point, what I tend to do is I tend to run a stool test and kind of see what's going on. Um, mo- a lot of my patients have had a lot of traumas, uh, most of the time sexual. So there have been a lot of sexual traumas. Um, you know, so that just tends to be the subset that I have seen, but there, there tends to be some sort of trauma going on. A lot of times it hasn't been addressed. So that is one thing that I see when I'm taking the history. Um, also the other thing is that most of these folks are really eating the same foods day in and day out. They are afraid to eat, um, vegetables that a lot of times are afraid to eat raw vegetables. They hurt. Um, A lot of times people will say broccoli or cauliflower, Brussels sprouts are really, really irritating um, type foods. Uh, And so they'll avoid a lot of these people can't eat. And so that tends to be another symptom. So, um, so generally what I will see on stool testing is I see a lack of microbiome diversity is one of the biggest things. Some some patients have H. pylori, some don't. Um, Some patients have SIBO, some don't. Um, The literature says about 80% of uh, IBS patients have SIBO. Um, I I don't know if my population is quite that high. Um, Some do, some don't. I, I would probably put it maybe closer to 60 is what I see in my general subset. Um, but, but SIBO can be a contributing factor, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, and so that really comes with bloating. I see a lot of the methane group, which is constipation. Um, I always see some form of dysbiosis. Um, so that is dysbiosis is an overgrowth of um, maybe a bacteria that's normal in your gut that's gotten overgrown. And occasionally, I see pathogens and parasites that are, that are uh, problematic. A large portion of the time, I see leaky gut in IBS cases. Um, I sometimes see that, that patients are having trouble filtering or moving things out of their system. And then also digestive enzyme problems. The other thing that I think I see that's, that I see about 50% of the time is gallbladder issues. Okay. so those tend to be the big things that I see. And I I feel like everyone's different and has a diverse mix of that um, that, you know, is is a contributing factor with with my IBS patients. I also see a lot of anxiety and depression. I think that that's how I've linked some of the some of the traumas to it. I mean, because if you're scared to eat all the time, um, you know, that that can be very stressful and very traumatic and then other lingering traumas
0: and it's a cycle yeah you're stressed, scared get to eat and you don't eat and you know you're you're stressed out because you're not eating and then you eat and then you're scared to eat and it just goes on and on yeah yeah mm-hmm. so yeah. uh so wait there's so many diverse causes of um, ibs like like as you've just stated um how do you tell the so is this two tests enough for you to say you know this is the cause or you have to run more tests
1: I start, it depends on what they're they're presenting with. I generally start there. I ultimately like to run something called a micronutrient test to yeah. kind of build their system back up. But if they've got all kinds of dysbiosis in their gutter, they've got a parasite or they've got a pathogen. I don't really want to be feeding these critters, all of that. So I wait to do that Um Occasionally, I run food sensitivity tests afterwards. I I personally like an elimination diet better than a food sensitivity test. But sometimes when I get stuck, and I can't figure out what the food is, um, I will recommend that. But I will not run that until after I have cleaned and fixed up the gut. Because you just it's awkward to hand you know, because you're doing an immune system check. And it's, Super awkward to hand somebody a food sensitivity test and like you're reacting to 300 foods because I I haven't I haven't gotten rid of enough of what's going on in the gut. So I I I personally won't run food sensitivity tests at the beginning. My the folks that I see are a little too reactive. I know for some people that works, but I just don't. Um, And then sometimes I'll run if I suspect mold or or something else going on. I'll I will run um, some mold testing or I'll do like an organic acids test to kind of see just a baseline of what's going on with their stress levels and their neurotransmitter levels. Um, Something that I have found that has worked for me in practice has been um, if if someone's so stressed out and they're so upset and they have they are just they life is not good, they're not motivated, they feel worthless. It's, if they're in that kind of type of stress, it's, it's hard to get some movement on the gut, especially if they're having die off and certain things don't feel super great for them. So I actually treat sometimes with neurotransmitters early on to get more movement in the gut. And so neurotransmitters are like serotonin or dopamine. I know yeah. you know all this, um, but, um, but for serotonin, for example, it helps with um, your gut motility and so and and it helps you be a little more happy have a a little more resilience with pain um and and just not be in that state because you don't want to feel if you already feel bad you don't want to feel worse and um and I've just seen a, a correlation in my practice that a lot of the folks that come to see me have low neurotransmitter function also have kind of a a, a blotted down stress or adrenal response. So I kind of look at all of those things, and I'll run basic labs sometimes. Just it kind of depends on uh, what someone's presenting with.
0: Okay, great, great. And um, so typically, how long? Uh, I, and I know it varies from patient to patient, cause and whatnot. But if uh, you know when you when you take over a patient, how long does it t- should. They typically they expect to start feeling better because some of, you know, some some of these IBS patients or patients they've had the symptoms for so long and they want to be feel better yesterday pretty pretty much.
1: Yeah, it doesn't work like that. Wish it did. Yeah. So, um, so you know, um, a lot of times, I, yeah, it it really depends. Some people are like better within you know, within a couple weeks, um, they're, they're kind of the outliers, to be honest, they'll feel better. And, and what I, what I tell people, you know, is by the time they, they get to me, there's, there's a lot of things that are, that are wrong by this point. So, um, so I'm like, you know, so fixing the gut generally takes me about close to a year um, because I have to kill off the critters. And so I use herbs. So it takes me a little bit longer and then I have to repopulate and rebuild the gut most people are pretty great and they've incorporated foods back into their diet kind of at that eight month mark, like they've, they've reincorporated, they feel pretty good. They're not having any symptoms anymore, but I continue some of the things like prebiotics and um, some of the vegetable diversity and things like that kind of long beyond. Um, I think within the first month people notice a change. So um, in my really hard cases, uh, people notice like a thirty percent change after after the first month when they're able to eat more food, they're able to eat more quantity of food. Just as we start to do the die off, um, the die off reaction, but it it depends. You know, sometimes it, it gut it, gut health is tough because, uh, like f- funny story. You know, a person was pretty much better at six months, went to Mexico for something Good. for something and picked up a pathogen right and so you you can't live in a bubble so you also can pick things up so it's not totally a linear process um i think one of my hardest cases um i ran a stool test um and there was everything um you could see sibo i can see sibo on a stool test somewhat it's not like a perfect picture you generally do a sibo breath test but i i i saw sibo there was so much dysbiosis a parasite there were um, there, there were pathogens, E. coli, um, severe, uh, you know, c- good bacteria was low, leaky mm-hmm. gut, digestive problems, well, and beta were everything. And so yeah. I think in the stress in this person's case was so high. So after, I think, two months of being on antimicrobials, and I'm scratching my head, she was like, yeah, I mean, I feel like... I don't know, 10% better. And I mean, I had her, I had her on a lot of things and I'm like 10%, I'm missing something there. There's something that I'm missing here. And to me, I wasn't addressing the stress piece, which was primary, which I think was allowing everything to overgrow. And as we address the stress piece and as she addressed some of these issues that she had uh, that were long-term in therapy, like her gut got, tons better so it wasn't just the antimicrobial piece that we needed to work on in the rebuilding it needed to be outside of my treatment so it depends but i generally say you know about eight months is when we're really going to you're going to feel totally different and not not ever scared not scared anymore and you're going to feel a lot better
0: yeah so it's uh, it's a long haul it could be a long haul yeah a long haul yeah 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 and so you talked about uh, die off uh, earlier on. Um, mm-hmm. During the die off um, phase, uh, do and, and this is a question I get, I get asked a lot. Like you know, patients on therapy with a practitioner and they're having um, sort of symptoms getting worse and worse or something. And is that is that because of die off or? or is that should they should a patient expect to have any symptoms you know after taking the antibiotics due to um due to die of?
1: yeah i mean i you know i i generally so you know i do antimicrobial herbs i think you're treating more with antibiotics um i think it it depends um You know, I try to get folks to a point where they're not having severe die off. So I try to dose it appropriately to not have that happen. Um, Some people are very sensitive um, and, and they've been through a lot. And so, for example, like stress is a big factor with this. Right. So if you're super you have two people, you give them the exact same protocol and one person isn't getting better as fast and they're having severe die off symptoms and they're super stressed out at their job. I see that be a contributing factor or they don't have support at home or something else is maybe going on that, that's contributing to that. Um, what I personally do uh, is I warn folks about die off because I think they should know and I have them contact me if they feel terrible. So if they're if they can't work, I, you know, I'm like, you may have a headache for a couple days. You may feel kind of bloated. Your bowels may change. That's all normal. But if this gets to a point where you're miserable and you're not pooping, you need to contact me and let me know. And so most of the folks that I see, they're having the severe die off symptoms um, aren't, aren't eliminating well. Um, and so that can be a contributing factor or I have them dosed too high on antimicrobial herbs or it's too much. And so I just, I, I pair that back so that they don't have a terrible experience. So that's why it's kind of more a marathon for me than a race. I mean, and certainly, yeah. you know, with die-off, you can do some binders that help to bind some of that up. But sometimes those can be constipating for some people when you're using the binders or, you know, so for example, like you could use charcoal or you could use fiber. But in a case like SIBO, you know... I, Fiber sometimes does not feel great um, if somebody has, you know, a severe SIBO infection. So that that kind of makes it a little more complicated in the initial dying-off phases of something like SIBO.
0: Yeah, so, uh, talking about SIBO, um, what is your um th- thoughts on um treatment and diagnosis of SIBO? Because um it can be sometimes can be really tricky to diagnose. And so, how do you approach diagnosing patients with SIBO? Or do you sometimes just treat, you know, thinking, okay, it's SIBO it, it, based on what you're hearing from the patient?
1: Yeah. Like what? So, there's signs and symptoms, you know. Certainly, I think that uh, people will kind of lead you in that direction, um, you know, for some of the signs and symptoms of it. You know, again, uh, a lot of the times I see a methane-based SIBO. Um, I s- occasionally see a hydrogen-based SIBO. Um, you know, in general terms, this is not true across the board, but a methane-based SIBO, they're going to be more constipated, more bloated, um, and then in a, in a hydrogen, a lot more diarrhea, but it doesn't. it's not that clean all the time. Um, so sometimes I'll see somebody that's constipated that has a hydrogen base. Anyway. Long story short. So my what I do for diagnosis is um, one of two things. Um, If I suspect SIBO, I have a conversation with the patient that I suspect it. And like the gold standard for diagnosing SIBO is a SIBO breath test. Um, I a lot of times run a stool test because it gives me more information outside of SIBO on how to fully heal the gut. There are some markers on the stool test that I use um, that will look for methane overgrowth. But it's kind of tricky, right? Because because I'm looking for a small intestine infection and I'm testing the stool, which means that SIBO cases can get missed um, if that's my only reliance. So I basically say, hey, if I suspect it, I treat with antimicrobial herbs for it or, or if they're kind of close on the line and I've seen enough comparative tests to kind of know where that line is on numbers. Um, and so that's what, what I do. And then I treat with antimicrobial herbs, um, for generally somewhere between six weeks and three months at six weeks. It's generally pretty good. Um, and I keep them on pretty low dosage of the herbs, um, And then, uh, so that's what I do. Um, and then I start to repopulate their gut, um, at about the month point when that is down to bring their good bacteria up. And that's what generally works for me. Um, and I don't have too much in the way of, um, additional ones, except I will say if I miss mold. If there's mold in, uh, on the case, like you'll have a chronic SIBO infection or other pathogens. So sometimes if someone has a chronic SIBO infection, I want to know what maybe could be higher up on the food chain that could be contributing to that. Um, I personally do not do a a low FODMAP diet. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, so, it, what what I what my experience was in practice uh, is that if I do a low FODMAP diet, people uh, when they bring back in those foods, they start to get bloated again. So, I personally do the antimicrobial herbs. I do the FODMAPs to tolerance, whatever they can whatever they can tolerate without getting bloated. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, so I basically will kind of limit that a little bit so they're not too uncomfortable, but. I have found that the bacteria hide when you go on a super low FODMAP diet and I can't get rid of it. That's just been my experience. Um, and so that's kind of how I treat it. So I just have them eat uh, FODMAPs to tolerance.
0: So you don't see any role for the low FODMAP diet at all doing in the um, in your SIBO protocol?
1: I, I just, that's, that's just not how, no. I, I personally just don't because I just can't get rid of it as well. Um, I think the low FODMAP has great results. It's just pretty strict. I feel the same way about the elemental yeah, diet. I agree. Uh, and I so agree. it's, it's you know, I, I definitely see, you know, some people have gotten great results with doing it with antimicrobial herbs. I think other people have had a hard time. And so that's just yeah. been my, how I've worked it. You know, who knows that may change in the future, but that's been what I've done for for a while. Um, I, I was... I was sort of, uh, Dr. Pimentel was, uh, he's kind of the foremost SIBO expert on, he he said the same thing and I was like, that's what I've, I've had such a hard time with in practice and so um, so I, you know, I had reverted back to not doing a low FODMAP diet because the case is just, it kept on coming back, but that's just been my experience and everyone's an individual, so. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that people have different thoughts about it. You know, using the low FODMAP diet or not. So, I'm um, yeah. good to hear your experience um, with that in SIBO. And and uh, what do you see a role for probiotics or pro- prebiotics um, in your in your therapy at all, or do you say um, patients should not take either of those uh, during therapy?
1: I do. I mean, I definitely start, um, I start with short chain fatty acids pretty early on. I am um, pretty early in treatment and I start with um, what they can tolerate. I, I generally wait to add in, depending on the case or depending on what's going on, one to two months with probiotics. But I think they're super helpful as long as they're not irritating to the system. But yeah, I definitely see a role. When I incorporate it in, it's somewhere between one to three months within SIBO treatment. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I think it, it works. Um, some people, you know, um, and I, I also am a, a fan of what like if, if they can tolerate, if they're, if they're, if they have a system that's intact and they're not having problems with histamine um, they're not having too much, I will incorporate fermented foods if, if they can tolerate them later down the line, um, to the amount that they can tolerate if it's not bringing up symptoms. What I generally start with kind of to repopulate the gut is some, some blended raw veggies. That's, so I have, I, I basically recommend that folks eat a different raw vegetable blended every day. Um, and, and that actually helps to, as long as it's not too painful or hurts their gut that helps a lot. It takes a, I, I, people that come in to see me that have heard me say that, say that their uh, gastrointestinal issues are 80% improved by the time they see me. So I feel like that little tidbit helps a ton of people pretty, pretty easily.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and then when you do, you, do you see, what do you do for patients who have relapses? So that's, do you see a lot of that in your practice? Because that's one thing a number of SIBO patients complain about.
1: Yeah, the relapses. I think that what um, what I have found, you know, the relapses, it seems like something is higher up on the totem pole. So, um, you know, a SIBO case uh, relapsed, that had a a C. diff infection and a parasite after Mexico travel. So I've seen that. I've also seen mold be a huge contributor to a relapse, to a SIBO infection. Um, Stress is another thing that's a big relapsing piece. Um, You know, and I think it just, so that, so I guess I kind of see what's there, what, and I, I have people rerun the testing if they're relapsing to see what we need to treat because sometimes I get surprised, but um, the big thing that I've seen as a relapse is that someone's being exposed to mold or they have something higher up on the food chain. Um, So that's, that's generally what I see. Um, And I try to shift their diet. I also look to see what they're eating and I really look to see if I can change the diversity of what they're eating as well and see if there's anything that could be triggering. But yeah, mold's a big one for, for my practice.
0: So is there any way to prevent relapse or um,
1: any way to to prevent it? Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I can prevent anything in practice, but um, (laughs) I, I think the biggest thing is building up the good bacteria in the gut is, you know, in making sure you're hitting all those, like, you know, making sure you're dealing with all the, extenuating circumstances, you know, the stress, the, um, you know, et cetera, all of those things that you can deal with, uh, food sensitivities, et cetera. But, um, I don't know if there's a hundred percent of the way, but I've had great luck just building up their good bacteria after I clear out their, their bad bacteria. I really like short chain fatty acids and I really like, uh, diet diversity. Um, those two things, most people
0: seem to do pretty well with. Great, great. Thank you so much. Uh, just a couple of things. I just want to get your tips for some things that um, uh, patients uh, complain about, which is one of them is um, diarrhea um, that is very debilitating, yeah, stops people from going out, doing things. Do you have like a, you know, a, a tip for people to just um, plug it in temporarily at least?
1: Yeah. Binders help. So, um, so some of the things that I found with diarrhea is sometimes folks need fiber to kind of slow down and bind. Um, Sometimes they don't, sometimes it makes it worse and it makes it, uh, you know, it makes it even worse. Um, The other things, sometimes uh, diarrhea is associated with actually being more constipated. So, I mean, sometimes, you know, that can be coming out because someone's a little more constipated and they're not moving their bowels super duper well um the other thing you know you can do that is really helpful for uh, diarrhea is you know things like bentonite clay or activated charcoal to help kind of slow slow that down but there's something your body's trying to get out whether it's it has something like a like a pathogen or a parasite or something maybe it's a food that's that you're eating that your body's like nope uh uh-uh um, so I think like looking at all of those, those pieces, um, one, one big thing that I've seen, uh, with diarrhea is keto diets, pretty, pretty popular. It's a pretty, yeah. pretty popular diet. And so, uh, people are having, you know, uh, and some people just tend to tend to not be able to handle, I think so much fat at a meal yeah, for a variety of different reasons, you know? And so one thing, um, you know, a patient of mine was having severe diarrhea all day, couldn't make it to a work uh, meeting. And, uh, it you know, she was having bacon and uh, MCT oil and oh, uh, wow. sausages or something else for breakfast. And like, so as we took the fat level down, she was totally fine. Oh, wow. So, I mean, sometimes it can just be fat. And so I think something to look at to see, yeah. you know, how you're assimilating and absorbing fat is... Are your stools sinking or are they floating? Because if they're floating, that is straight through. And probably on the right side by your rib cage, that quadrant there is going to be a little tender to touch. And so there might be some problems going on sort of in the gallbladder liver region. And so, you know, I think addressing those things and potentially playing with consumption, but I, I see that a lot of people are... Potenti- potentially just tweaking the diet a little bit can, can do a lot for that.
0: Yeah, I, I you know, I, hear, I you know I think that probably a, a, there are a lot of people who have diarrhea who have gall, ongoing gallbladder problems as well. So um, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely.
1: Yeah, and I think even carbohydrates too, you know, pr- trouble processing carbs. I, I don't know what you've seen, but, you know, um, when I'll, I'll see it on a stool test and it'll just be like the, the pancreatic enzymes aren't flowing because there's just, you know, a lot of sludge or stone where, you know, you can't get some of those enzymes out. So gallbladder is very, very important, (laughs) very important.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So uh, thanks a lot, um, Dr. Bod. I really enjoyed having you here and hope to have you again uh, to talk some more about gut God, God health and SIBO IBS and so much of the functional gut disorders. So where can people find you if they want to follow your work, reach out to you, have questions
1: Yeah awesome. So um, my uh, so you can you can find a lot of the information on uh dr um, that's without an E. And then um, you can also check out um, our the gut health reset podcast and our practice website um, is all there. So I don't really do much with social media guys. So you can really pretty much find me on my website and on my podcast.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thanks again. And um, have a good one. Take care. Thanks for coming.
1: Thanks for listening. Find out more about today's guest and episode in the show notes at Casa DeSante's website casadasante.com.